Good evening and welcome to the obelisk. How is everybody doing tonight? No answer. All right. Yeah, so very good on my end. Yeah. Doing great. <laughs> Sorry, I had to unmute. Yeah. Talking about me fucking up every week, huh? <laughs> you know, I'm used to, I'm used to Nux Mente where you I bring know, in the whole I know. I could do I'll start doing it that way. I'll I'm never sorry. I was, it's a rhetorical question for the audience, so I mean, I don't actually expect a response, but it's nice to get one. Anyway, tonight's guest, we have uh, Phoenix Aurelius. Phoenix has been a practitioner of alchemy for over 15 years and is an instructor for over a decade. Known as the modern renaissance man, Phoenix possesses an ability to communicate complex and vast ideas using concise language. Being a pioneer in his field, Phoenix feels that alchemy is more timely and relevant than ever before and is passionate about people learning and assimilating the information into their daily lifestyles. He sees alchemy and cosmomimicry as the key to transpersonal psychology, sound sociology, and healthy ecology, and thus teaches alchemy from that perspective. He is the VP of Research and Development for Niyama, where he develops spagyric formulations to meet the demands of the modern world. Phoenix, so happy to have you on the show tonight. Hey, thanks so much. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to be on. Yeah, it's a great honor. You're a big name in, in the world, in my world, at least, as far as wow. alchemy is concerned and what you've brought forth. So, cool. Well, that's that's really good to to hear that. That's, those are some, some very kind uh, accolades, in my opinion. So thank you. Yeah, I, I feel honored. I was just today looking at, I was making some orders. I, I, I ordered from... Oh, geez. Nance's site. A yeah, couple of, I love his stuff. And so I reordered and then I went on over to your site. And so actually off the bat, I was curious about, so thyroiditis, stuff for thyroid Hashimoto's. I see you have a thyroid uh, option in there. What would you suggest for people dealing with those kinds of issues with the endocrine system, but in particular thyroiditis? Um, yeah, so on a scale from one to 10, how technical and in, in depth do you want me to be right now? Well, for me, since I've been deep into this for a long time, you can go to 10, but I don't know about the audience. So maybe we should settle in a five. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds great. Okay, so Basically, Hashimoto's can be caused by a wide range of different things, according to all of the research that I've done and the case studies that I've done. In fact, I'm working with a woman. Um, I'm working with a couple of people who have uh, Hashimoto's, but one in particular that we have medically confirmed through tests, third-party tests with her um, medical physicians, that all of her thyroid antibodies are 95% eliminated now. So they were extremely, extremely oh, wow. terrible. And now they've seen a 95% decrease, meaning that she's actually out of the, the range of having uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So thyroid disorders, the thyroid is an endocrine organ that's in, in, in the neck. Uh, and basically it governs over uh, the production of hormones and the release of hormones for a wide range of different things. I mean, everything from like sleep to digestion to communicating downstream with the thymus uh, for immune function and so on. And it also communicates with the pancreas. And so oftentimes you'll see people with Hashimoto's also having uh, carbohydrate metabolism disorders, specifically from stuff due to gluten. And that yes. translates to the MTHFR uh, C677T 
uh, genes. I've got a damn fly in here, so if I swat, that's what I'm going for. Yeah, exactly. No pets on the show. So I, uh, what, what I have ended up finding is that the thyroid itself usually is not something that really needs to be looked at. There's really two factors when people have Hashimoto's. The first is that the hypothalamus or, or the pituitary or both, but usually the hypothalamus has some sort of disruption, either heavy metal congestion or some sort of trauma to the hypothalamus, you know, blunt force trauma falling down, hitting your head, things like that, that actually inhibits signals, hormones, et cetera, from being able to travel downstream um, and relate to the pituitary, which will then relate with the thyroid, parathyroid, thymus, pancreas, and eventually the adrenals in order to create that whole axis that's called the HPA axis. So um, what I've seen is that you actually have to go upstream from the, the thyroid and you have to take a look at the hypothalamus and hypothalamus health. Secondly, Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disorder actually. And yes. what's happening is that typically one of, one of the theories and when the thing that IDF uh, data on my end is showing is that physiologically, when people have uh, Hashimoto's, what's, what's ending up happening is that their body has developed some sort of antibody to uh, a protein that's inside of wheat or gluten-based materials or gluten-containing materials rather. And I'm trying to think of the name of that. I, I wanna call it gliadine, but I'm not 100% certain that that's it. I would have to pull that up after the show or on a break or something. But at uh, any rate, this, this particular um, protein chain is so similar to the protein chains that the amino acids that compose the uh, thyroid gland that once all of the uh, wheat or gluten containing material and all of the gliadine or whatever the name of the protein is that gets broken down once that's out of the body the body's antibodies are still producing uh antibody to that ends up attacking the thyroid and so this is where certain hormones that the thyroid are, is meant to produce actually get inhibited or thrown out of balance or start producing too much. So a lot of people think, oh, I've got thyroid problems. I can just take some iodine or I can just take bladder rack and, and get rid of it. Um, it's really a little bit more complex than that because yes. every autoimmune condition really comes down to three things. First, there's a trigger event. But then the trigger event is directed primarily by genes. So like if you have the MTHFR 677T um, alleles or, you know, any of these other, other types of variations, then that is something that um, you really need to just be aware of because the genes themselves don't create a sensitivity. It's that they direct the, the trigger event. And then the third thing that has to be in place, because a trigger event won't trigger autoimmunity unless your immune system is already overburdened and overtaxed. And 90% uh, of the time or more in my clients, what we see is intestinal hyperpermeability or leaky gut. Yes. And so it's those three things that I have found that lead to autoimmune conditions on a physiological level. But then behind that, there's the Chinese medicine level of the etheric body and the meridians and so on and so yes. forth. Uh, the triple warmer meridian relates very heavily to the entire endocrine system, as does conception vessel and governing vessel to a, a larger degree or a, a smaller degree as well. But the largest component of it is triple warmer meridian. 
And then behind that, there's also ancestrale, the cause of disease due to planets. And so I find that if people have Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, uh, either of those or all of those out of balance, then they're actually very heavily at risk for uh, developing Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So I'm still far enough away from the finish line that I can't tell you, oh, everybody that has Hashimoto's has ancestrale. But what I can say is all of the people that I've worked on so far that have Hashimoto's do have that cause of disease in common. So um, whether that's going to be across the board or, or not remains to be seen, though. This is fascinating and also, I think, promising with your work in this. What protocols did you use? What of your your particular uh, elixirs, your your particular stuff, did you give your lady clients to deal with this particular issue, the Hashimoto's? Yeah. So, you know, she she's in Australia. And mm -hmm. so it takes a long time to get things from here to there. But I think when she first started working with us, we tried, you know, bladder rack, we tried proteemia, which balances out an entire host of monoamine neurotransmitters yeah. uh, that, you know, change brain chemistry in the hypothalamus. And hopefully then, you know, that impacts things downstream. We've also tried heavy metal detoxing uh, to get the heavy metals out of the hypothalamus. Uh, and so I've got a formula called heavy metal detox formula RX. And um, that's, that's the one that we used for her. So we've, we've done a couple of things that way, but we noticed actually very, very marginal results in the spagyric approach for, for that particular client. And that seems to be true with the other clients that I have that have Hashimoto's as well. It doesn't seem like any particular spagyrics or set of herbs, um, at least from a Western perspective, like this herb is good for this, or this alters this yeah. chemical constituent. We haven't been able to find anything like that. Um, there are... Chinese medicine approaches of formulations, but then that takes a diagnosis from a traditional right. Chinese medicine practitioner to be able to find out what the particular imbalance is. Because in Chinese medicine, 12, you know, 12 different people can go in with Hashimoto's and get 12 entirely different diagnoses of what the root cause of that is for them. So um, with that being said, the herbs that need to be applied are different for every person. And it's definitely not a one size fits all approach. Uh, so what I've done actually is do IDF uh, balancing broadcasts and research uh, with my research clients and investigations. And it seems to be that that's really the main, uh, especially to start off with, with Enzastrale, uh, the cause of disease due to the planets and stars. That's where we really have to start because unless we clear that out, the chain of command from the subtle energy body into the physical body goes spiritual, causal, astral, etheric is actually just a halfway point between the astral and then the physical. So mm -hmm. the etheric body is really just a halfway point. Uh, Paracelsus used to call that the archaeus, but that's where Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and other things like that, that's where they really kick in. Yeah. I love the, the TCM and the Ayurveda. This has been a long path for me, but it, it seems like there's an epidemic of, of, endocrine and autoimmune stuff going on yeah. across the globe really but definitely in the western world and of course it looks to me premeditated if you want to say yeah. that like by design and so <laughs> yeah oh yeah oh we so, should definitely go there i'd like to talk i'd like to discuss that chain of command you just went over but first <laughs> i have things to, <laughs> to read you guys took off without me 
Oh, sorry, Jared. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Just step all over me. I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> right, don't bring out the dom in me. <laughs> Back up, don't on touch it, baby. me with a good time. <laughs> don't even get me started. I wanted to uh, thank our latest Patreon, Patron, whatever the hell it is, uh, Christy Mesmer. Thank you for signing up. Thank and, you, Christy. Yes, we love you. I wanted to read about the corn moon tonight. There's a moon. It's rising right now in front of me. I can see it. It's uh, the first time in three years the September moon is in a unique situation. It's happening so early in the month, a timing that gives it an entirely different name, which is the corn moon instead of a harvest moon. It sets the stage for October when we'll have two full moons, which means there'll be a rare blue moon at the end of, of October on Halloween. How weird is that? Mm-hmm. So this full, cool. <laughs> it is cool. This full moon is named for the East Coast corn harvest. Reach a peak tonight at 1.22 a.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow. Whatever tonight. Anyway, that's all I had to read. And um, our corn yields have failed because of, of course, I weaponized of weather. Yes. And so, you know, traditionally, I talked about this with Montana Jordan and Solaris Blue Raven on on your other on show. show yeah and one of them and <laughs> it was i know so many uh, uh but yeah so traditionally there would be some sort of a sacrifice now that we're in the second harvest and the f- crops have failed uh, and then instead of the old school gods it's the new gods right it's uh, the new weaponized technical technological gods that have laid waste to our food stores and given us terrible crop yields because of very strange weather events. Because of reasons. Yes. <laughs> so traditionally, there would be a sacrifice to appease that energetic wave or those gods and prayers and all that that go with it to try and balance what was an imbalance to get the next season's uh crops to grow it's almost like we're living in the original wicker man but not sacrificing version (laughs) apparently so anyway um so you guys kind of geeked out there on health stuff and i had no idea what you're talking about so (laughs) (laughs) yeah we'll reel it back in i was wondering (laughs) if you could um like just lay some groundwork here for for what spagyrix is, how you use it in your work, or, or it is basically your work, but how it relates to alchemy, if it's the same thing, or how it's subtly different, and how it relates to your work and what you do. Yeah, brilliant stuff, man. Um, okay, so we'll start start at ground floor, okay? We'll talk about alchemy first, because spagyria was born out of the alchemical tradition. In the West, so India has its own alchemical tradition, and today that's still alive. That's known as Rasa Shastra. We also have Taoist alchemy, where they were actually uh, smelting metals in three different cauldrons and, you know, doing, doing all these really interesting sublimations of materials. And they created, you know, mercury sulfides and, you know, all sorts of other things that are pretty unique all the way across the board, Western alchemy, Indian alchemy, Chinese alchemy, uh, different approaches, different cultural approach for sure, different uh, context also for how they explain the work. But um, the tradition of alchemy that I really have followed and studied really intensely is the the Western esoteric tradition of alchemy and the Western alchemical path, uh, particularly 
my branch is that of Paracelsus, but uh, alchemy came along many, many thousands of years before Paracelsus, and uh, it started with the probably Mesopotamians and, you know, moved into Egypt and into Greece as a result of that. And then eventually um, the Moors, uh, the Muslims who took over Egypt, got all of that information. And then they moved into Spain and up into Europe. And that's when Western alchemy uh, really as like a European tradition came to be known that way. So all of those share a very uh, lineated source though. And for the most part, uh, the, the oldest texts that we have about alchemy really go back to the Muslim writings. There is, there is one piece of uh, information that is Egyptian that was translated into Arabic and then translated into the European languages and comes to us today, and that's called the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus. And this is pretty much like the cornerstone of all alchemical literature. And in that, it tells us that alchemy is the operation of the sun, and it also says that this is the greatest force of all forces because it overcomes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing. So the way that people tend to perceive alchemy today is that it's a Western alchemist, uh, typically what we would call a puffer or a souffleur in French, and huddling over his chemistry set, trying to turn lead into gold. And most people think that uh, either alchemy was this vain science of turning lead into gold or that everything that they wrote about, they encrypted very heavily with physical materials and imagery, and they were actually working archetypes. And that's, that's Jungian uh, kind of psychology for you right there. The truth of it is that alchemy is an entirely comprehensive system that incorporates the soul, the spirit, and body into everything. And that's only as of Paracelsus. Paracelsus was the first one to say that soul, spirit, and body, or what we call sulfur, mercury, and salt, respectively in the alchemical tradition, um, that all three of those exist. Before him, there was an Arabic guy named Al-Jabir, and he said that sulfur mercury exists, and he was playing with sublimations of metals. And somehow they didn't, uh, like they had powdered materials that they were working with. They had ashes. They knew how to do all the, the processes with the salts, but they never considered the salts a salt in and of themselves. And it was Paracelsus saying, hey, listen, like there's sulfur, there's mercury, and there's salt. And if you put them all together, then, you know, now you, now you really have something that's alive. Because if you just have body and spirit, there's no soul to that material. It might be breathing, but it's not going to be animated. Uh, so to speak. And so um, that's, that's kind of the concept that Paracelsus came up with, that everything has a soul, a spirit, and a body. And um, Does that have anything the... to do with homunculi? <laughs> well, yeah, like a homunculi can't come to life unless you have soul, spirit, and body inside of there, too. Right. Um, so, yeah, for anybody who's interested in actually reading about people who have practically undertaken the homunculus work, um, I suggest reading um, the biography that Mark Stavish did of Dr. Joseph Lazuski. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he's got some of the best information in that about the heartbreaks and the, the actual realities of uh, creating homunculi. And so, yeah, anyway, um, so, you know, alchemy really is the set of patterns that can be followed or a set of uh, processes rather that can be followed in any, any number of ways, all, all myriad different ways really, to be able to either exalt and or transform 
uh, matter, spirit, and body um, all together, and to be able to raise the the octave of uh, its existence in a certain way when you put it all back together. So the concept is that you take out the soul, you take out the spirit, you take out the body of a material, you perfect each of those in their own right, and then you combine uh, combine them back together and allow them to digest and and um, to be able to work on one another. And by the time you're done, you have something that's noticeably, uh, no longer noticeable as the starting material that you worked, you know, that you start working on. And so alchemy's laws and principles aren't just allegorical for spiritual terms. We're seeing when we work in the laboratory, we're seeing the spirit, the body and the soul at the same time, we're working on those aspects of ourselves. So the soul would be like your psychological aspect. Your spirit is going to be your discipline and your your physical energy levels, your tea, so to speak, in, in Chinese medicine. And then you're also going to have um, your, your actual physical projects that you're working on, the physical material. And we are constantly dissecting all three of those planes all at once. And, and we feel that only by, as alchemists, we feel that only by really performing this work do you get to see nature's inner processes really exposed to you in such a way that you would understand how nature works and how nature is constantly transforming and all those things. So everything that we do as alchemists is all derived 100% from nature and natural processes. And then what we do is we take it in a small scale and we work with it in the lab and catalyze it in very particular ways in order to not only see what it does, but in order to be able to find out what the spiritual and psychological correlations or corollaries are um, between the work that we're seeing physically and, and what we're processing internally. And that can happen with you know metals and it can happen with herbs and it can happen with water. So you know the concept of transmuting metals really is, that's one pathway and not necessarily the highest pathway either. But, but in some, sorry, go sorry, Jer, go. No, in some ways that the, the idea of turning lead to gold is uh, metaphorical. Yeah, it's very metaphorical. And it is part of, of the alchemical corpus of works. And some, depending on your pathway, some would even say the pinnacle of being able to show that you have mastered nature's processes as intimately as nature herself has mastered those processes. But that's really all that that work should be taken, undertaken for. And um, it, just like with the sages of old, it's like those who say don't know and those who know don't say, like if you're undertaking the work or if you're working on it really seriously, you, you typically don't say a whole lot about it. Um, and it's not something that you brag about. It's not the money that you're after and, you know, all these other right. things. So it, it's by the time work. You, yeah, exactly. By the time you get to that point in actually creating the Philosopher's Stone, you typically have a sense of uh, peace and knowledge and wisdom from all of the other work that you've undertaken that, you know, the, the vanity of it all is completely removed and it's just a test. Can you explain that aspect of the Philosopher's Stone for our audience? Uh, which aspect would that be? Whatever you just said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finding the Philosopher's Stone, I think you said. Uh, well, just do it. In, I, I feel like I don't know what the audience has said, but perhaps to approach the Philosopher's Stone from uh, a newbie. synthesizing all the information into, so the general 
idea that the public has about the Philosopher's Stone from, say, media and movies and all that, like in the Harry Potter stuff. <laughs> from Harry Potter to reality. Right. Yeah. Well, and then through the psychological stuff, through the union stuff, and uh, down into the physical work of the material, where I guess the facets of it, the processes of the the stone itself, of the work itself. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there's really multiple pathways to go about creating everything in alchemy. There's at least two pathways. One would be called Humida, which is, means the wet yes. way, which uses uh, chemical solvents and uh, menstrua to be able to break things down and dissolve them and precipitate them out and so on and so forth. And then there's also Huyasika, uh, which means the dry way. Um, so there's typically those two main paths. But then within those, there are also subcategories and lots of different ways of approaching the work. Because again, it's really based in principle, not necessarily direct methodology. But the pathway that I am the most familiar with is Wiasika, uh, specifically the Flamel path of the Wiasika, as taught by Jean Dubuis and mm -hmm. elaborated upon by a couple of other people. And so basically, what um, in the laboratory, you're, you're working with metals at this point because you're working on transmuting things inside of the metallic kingdom. You're working on a substance that will ultimately be able to transform lead into gold or baser metals in general into gold. And the way that uh, the philosopher's stone is created uh, on a practical level is by uh, taking various uh, oxides of antimony and a few other flux agents and um, iron, iron shot and being able to create an ingot of antimony and iron uh, ore basically that, and, and oxides that end up turning into like this nice little ingot. And then uh, once you have smelted that and it won't absorb any more iron, then we actually add copper and we add silver. So it becomes what's called as a lunar, which means silver, Venusian, which means copper. And again, these correlate to the planet, so Luna, yeah is, you know, corresponds to silver, Venus corresponds to copper, and then Marshall corresponds to iron, and uh, then the Regulus, the little king, which corresponds to antimony. And so uh, you end up creating what's called a lunar Venusian Marshall Regulus. And uh, once you have that, then you have to prepare your philosophical mercury. And what you do is you take actual metallic mercury and put it in a miner's retort, you drop in your lunar Venusian Marshall Regulus, and you let it dissolve because mercury dissolves most metals. It dissolves gold and all these other things. And when you distill out the mercury, now you have like one big chunk. This used to be a, a common miner's trick. They would actually take little bits of the ore that wasn't enough, uh, like little dusts and things that still had a fair bit of gold in them, but they would throw all of the main rock into the mining barrel in order to go out to the company. But they'd take little bits of this dust and keep it for them. They built these little miners reports and you know, get little bits of gold. And, you know, after 20 years of working in a mine, for instance, you, you've got a nice little chunk there. Um, so that being said, uh, you, you put the, the lunar, Venusial, lunar Venusian Marshall Regulus inside of the metallic mercury and you distill the mercury. And this is known as flying the eagles. Mm -hmm. And so you do seven distillations where the mercury has dissolved the ingot, you distill the mercury out, the ingot reforms. And then you take that, you purify it again, drop it back in the mercury and distill the mercury again. So those are called cohobations and you do seven cohobations. 
of that, which is known as flying the eagles. And that prepares the work for what's called philosophical mercury. And particularly, that's the philosophical mercury of Weasica flamelpa. Then uh, what you do is you have to take the seed of gold and you can prepare the seed of gold a wide number of ways, including from uh, what's called the scoria, which is kind of the waste from making the lunar, Venusial, uh, lunar Venusian Marshall Regulus. Um, there's, there's some waste on it, especially when you're doing the first uh, couple of pullings with the iron. And so what ends up happening is that you have this like black charred looking material. It's pretty easy to grind up and break up with a hammer. Uh, you can extract the, the seed of gold out of that, or you can actually take it from native gold or any, any source really that's 24 karat or higher, but native gold is preferred or work the poor man's path, which is called working with the scoria. And once you take the seed of gold, then you have seed and you have a menstruum and you can literally impregnate uh, that menstruum with the seed of gold. And what ends up happening is uh, some very realistic color changes that happen as you incubate this in a hermetically sealed environment for a long time. The heat is just high enough that it's catalyzing various principles and various uh, chemical constituencies inside of there. So like you might see it, you know, putting off these weird dark fumes for a little while or putting out white fumes after you incubate it, you know, after the black phase and then eventually turning into the red phase and so on and so forth. And the actual substance goes from more or less a liquid mercury into like darker material. And at one point it will turn green and have orange flowers on it. And, you know, there, there's a number of different elucidations for how the philosopher's stone looks as you continue to incubate it. So um, eventually though, what ends up happening is that the entire substance will turn red. Uh, in some accounts, you grow a tree in there, like there's this little spindly looking tree thing that grows these tiny little red, what look like red fruits hanging from mm -hmm. the tree branches. Mm -hmm. And then those will fall down and then eventually everything will start to turn red after that. Uh, but the whole process takes, you know, anywhere between one to two years uh, just to get it to a point of incubation where you're going to be seeing uh, any phase of, of reddening like this. And for some people that I know, it's been up to six years that they've been at it and just continually incubating. So there, there, there's not a lot of peer review on this yet in terms of how can we standardize the methodology, perform this, use this material, this heat, you know, so on and so forth. So there are, there's different variables that cause people to get slightly different results. But then once you uh, have that red material, then it has to, if you want to use it for transmutation of, of the metals, uh, you have to undergo two more processes of what are called multiplication and then projection. And then you can take a small amount of that substance, wrap it inside a beeswax, drop it into a base or metal. Lead is really awesome because you can heat it up and melt it really easily, just like with the candle usually. Um, and so you don't need very high heat to melt it. And that's why that one is so, and it's dirt cheap. So that, that's why that one is uh, typically used but you can use all sorts of different baser metals. A lot of people would use mercury uh, back in the day, especially in the European text because it was more available than it is now. And so that, that's an actual physiological process um, that I'm familiar with of creating the philosopher's stone. I've heard about other different pathways like uh, in Splendor Solis and other things like that mm -hmm. of doing the wet work, but I've not seen it diagrammed out in such a way that uh, I can speak to that authoritatively.
So mercury is an interesting metal. Is that, uh, is I don't, I'm asking, I don't know. Is it mined or created? Or no, both? mercury is mined. Yeah, there, there's actual veins of mercury that, that, and technically what ends up happening is that you, you get cinnabar rock and cinnabar yes. and different other types of, of uh, mercury minerals contain mercury inside of it from which the metallic mercury can be refined. But it's always a liquid, right? It's always in that liquid state. So there, I guess a vein of it wouldn't be like a pool. If you broke through a, a rock wall, would like a pool of mercury flow out ever? Or is it all locked within the rocks? You know, as far as I know, it's locked within the rocks. But there might be veins or, you know, I, I'm not 100% certain on the mining aspect, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I don't. I, I just thought it was interesting. The, the one thing I couldn't help thinking about while you're talking about all the processes involved with... Uh, you were just going through all the things in in the spagyria and the alchemical process. I just kept kept thinking, oh, this is magic. You're doing a ritual. It's all very ritualistic. The the it is very ritualistic. Yeah, um, it, you know, I, <laughs> here's what I'm trying to say. Jean Dubuis said in his works that alchemy was the only path of the Western esoteric tradition that you can't actually delude yourself with yes. whether the ritual worked or not because you have a physical counterpart it's not just psychological it's not just in your head it's not right. just spiritual within the feeling of your body it is or the feelings that are subtle not in the body you know however you want to describe that but it it actually has a physical counterpart too and so if the ritual is successful then you end up with the material that does exactly what the ancient masters would have told you that it did and so in that form i feel that it's a prerequisite to work with to understand the principles and the processes before working with theurgy, uh, which is a form of magic that um, works with not necessarily controlling, but commanding would be a better term, uh, various unseen spirits or forces. Demons. And, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Angels and demons, actually. Same thing. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All clothopic. So, yeah, that's that's basically the uh, the whole concept though. And I think that uh, a lot of people actually had that experience. Like Israel Rigardi would have said that, because he did study with Broder Albertus and did study alchemy at the Paracelsus Research Society here in Utah before he died. And in fact, that's how he ended up dying. He was working on making the lunar uh, <laughs> martial regulus. And he breathed in the smoke from doing that process. It's called feeding the black dragon. and. Mm -hmm you take these big scoopfuls of antimony oxide and flux agents and stick them inside and iron too, iron shot, and you stick them inside of a crucible that's being heated around a furnace at about 900 to 1100 degrees Celsius. And as soon as you do that, there's an actual detonation that happens and a huge plume of smoke um, goes into the air. Like Beirut. And, uh, say that again? Like in Beirut. <laughs> yeah. Like in Beirut, exactly, only uh, on a much smaller scale. Right. And yeah, what ends up happening is uh, sometimes the wind blows and Robert Bartlett always used to joke around and he would say, yeah, it's a good time to practice your pranayama. <laughs> uh, but be sure to wear your mask, everyone. Yeah, hell, wear a good chemical respirator yeah. or yeah. really good ventilation like that. That work is serious stuff. It's you know, when you serious. get somebody like uh, Israel Rigardi, who was very serious, very determined, very focused, very safe in his approach to the work, and then ended up 
hurting himself. That's just a testament to uh, how anybody can do it. No matter how safe you think you are, there's probably also one more step that you should consider. You just, you know, we were talking about how it's like almost, a, you know, a perfect outcome if you do it right. Um, I read a book by, was it Dr. Stephen Skinner? Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. So he wrote that book about the PGM, the, the Greek papyri. Yeah. And he tested all the one, he tested all the spells in there and they all worked. When he did it properly, they all worked. And his, his uh, conclusion was that this is a science. This, doing these spells, this magic in a certain way, the proper way. as And then he wrote a book actually laying out all the spells <laughs> and the proper way to do them and then his notes on it. But he did like wow. each, each one over 50 times and he came, came to the conclusion that this is a science. It yep. all works if you do it right. And what, you know, we, what you're describing is just a physical, a different physical set of rules and laws that we can use to 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 do these rituals, this this physical magic, if you will. I don't yeah. know, it's real interesting. One Absolutely. more thing, and then I'll shut up. <clears throat> You're talking about Paracelsus, and I was wondering if you ever saw the TV show Warehouse 13. No, I've never seen that. Okay, it was a sci-fi show years ago. I think it had five or six seasons. doesn't matter. In the later episodes, they... Uh, I forget exactly how it happened. They had a time machine of some sort, or they... They went back in time and H.G. Wells turns out to be a woman and comes to the future <laughs> and starts fucking around with everything. It was just, she's like to try and destroy it. But she brings Paracelsus back. In one Interesting. Of the, in, for, I think it was like three or four shows and he starts to rain havoc. He makes this potion that makes people zombies. It was great. <laughs> That's great. So <laughs> he created the new COVID vaccine. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I, I just want to bring that up because I thought that was interesting. And yeah, that is actually really interesting. Yeah, I, I I have heard of that show. I've never seen it though. So, but you just have uh, sparked an interest in me that says, I, you know, I, I need to check at least those couple of episodes out. Yeah, uh, Paracelsus was rad though, man. Like for people who don't know, I mean, he was healing uh, leprosy, plague, syphilis, um, uh, obstructive disorders, what we now call intestinal viruses or flus. Um, he was healing like all of this stuff in the 1500s, just flawlessly so much so that he was very insistent, sometimes even annoyingly so to his contemporaries that he knew more about medicine and could actually demonstrate it than anybody else. And in a time where you didn't have social media or other things, they just barely had like some news bulletins and it wasn't standardized all over Europe. You, you could really only publish books. And so he would write books and tell people as much as he possibly could and try and get students uh, at universities and things like that. But, um, you know, he, he would try and tell people, listen, I've got a much better method and you, you really got to listen to this and, and check this out because I'll show you how we can heal these things. And people of the time were so caught in their conventions, which sounds so much like it still does today, not much has changed, that when you say, hey, I've really figured something else out that really works and let me demonstrate it for you, they really want to make you fail and they want to try and criticize you as much as possible in order to berate you because it, it means that they would have to learn from scratch again. And they're, you know, typically pretty high on the hog uh, with their current degrees and titles and so on and so yeah, forth. Of course. 
And so, you know, for me, he was kind of like the, the epitome of a medical rebel who was able to really find things that worked and, you know, be able to say, listen, I'm, I'm willing to, to prove exactly what I know. In fact, they actually had him do just that. They put him into a colony of lepers one time <laughs> when he said, listen, I've healed leprosy and blah, blah, blah. And they were like, you healed leprosy? Okay, big shot. Pixar didn't happen. Yeah, exactly. And so he went into an entire colony of lepers and healed them all, except for a couple of them who were already beyond uh, a point where they could be healed. They were at a very critical stage. All the rest of the lepers walked out completely healed, much to the dismay of all of the doctors who had uh, taunted him and told him that he couldn't do so. And he figured out that you could heal most bacterial diseases, actually, through a concept of taking that person's own feces in a tiny little bread pill. So he would take a little pin and take their feces and then stick that pin into a, a little piece of bread and roll it up into a pill and just have them swallow yeah. it. Yeah. And that was kind of like uh, taking, because your digestive system and all of the tract is actually getting rid of the negative bacteria that are in there. And, and uh, colonizing with proper bacteria. And the way he looked at things is that it's not that you need to kick things out of the system so much. It's that they came there because there was an imbalance. They're growing because there's an imbalance. So if you put the right bacteria back in the system again, in just a small enough way with a probiotic and prebiotic structure, like, you know, tiny little amount of feces inside of the prebiotic of the bread, done. And it will bring people back into balance. So yeah, he's, he saved so many kings and queens and princes and stuff like that. And they refused to pay him. Uh, the one case in particular where they refused to pay him, it was just like his life was just one series of him trying to prove himself to the rest of the world, even though he was light years ahead of the rest of the world. Um, always have to deal with the adversity of the people of his time. And, you know, in so many ways, I experienced very similar yeah, Very you're pushing thing. forward. Yeah, that, and, that idea of fecal transplants has been in the news lately, too. I mean, I heard about it last year from, yeah. from John Hopkins, I think. I remember. Yeah, exactly. They, I mean, they're coming around 600 years later <laughs> to the same things that he said they wrote about very in, uh, definitely in the 1530s. So, yeah. It's, well, even with the idea of modern-day materialists that – and lay their coats, everything science, everything science, everything science, and yet they're so <clears throat> adhered or strapped down or bound to the conventional science that they are unable to see how to move forward. And yes. as you know, the process is taking what has been learned and pushing forward, but those that runs against the currents of finances, that runs against the currents of the 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 click at hand that is having control over these uh, theories. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is some of the great work you're doing, actually, pushing this forward and getting re peer reviewed and all that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one hell of a push, let me tell you that, because the powers that be and the people who finance um, medical studies want nothing to, they don't want to touch this type of research with the 10 foot pole because they know that their financiers also are the people who are in the pharmaceutical industry or are the pharmaceutical industry, big pharma itself. And, you know, when you take a look at the, the grants that are given, you take a look at all of the studies and even scientists that are, are paid, medical scientists to study virology and all these other things, 
it's a very, very tight knit group economically. You can trace it back to just a couple of financing organizations. And so, yes. um, and they're also funding the schools and the universities. And so even university grants and things like that, they don't want anything to do with this type of research because then it, you know, it's not feeding them on the back end with, okay, now we have a form of medicine that we can make, we can mass produce it through synthesization, we can get it out. And now it's a financial model because at the end of the day, they're just looking for an ROI. They just want the yeah, return. Yep. And so with research like this, I've relied on the public who values these things um, to be able to, to bring it forward. It's like Buckminster Fuller said, it's like, you, you can't try and change a system from the inside out. You have to create a new system that makes the old one obsolete. And the pathway that I'm trying to take is trying to get other people uh, very interested in this work and being able to finance it themselves because it doesn't take a whole lot of money, to be perfectly honest. Um, if the entire world could fund maybe 50 to 100 alchemists in total the t with, with a good enough structure and a plan a ahead of time, we would be able to vet a lot of concepts out and be able to help return the world to a very, very sustainable state of balance if people would listen to the demonstrations, not, not the published science, okay? That's cute. Published science is cute, don't get me wrong, but it's demonstrations. The proof is in the pudding. And when people can actually demonstrate time after time with reproducibility, here is what, you know, here's the techniques, here are the methodologies, here's what to do. I feel like the world would be in a drastically different place. So that's the system that I'm trying to create and trying to foster and cultivate as best as I possibly can. Um, because whatever, what's true is regardless of who's financing things, public decision also has an equal weight to financing in terms of what is popular or what is pushed on society. And if people demand that something goes into place, it doesn't matter what the financiers really want, they're going to end up financing it because that's just where the people are. If that's where the money's to be made, that's where they go, you know, so. Yeah, there's a there's always a great push though with, with those people that are uh, held fast. As I was saying earlier, I was wondering kind of way back, winding way back, do you feel that psychology co-opted the idea of alchemy oh yeah in, in particular the i love jung but and he did wonderful yeah, work too. and was talking from the real i i believe we're not talking about the cult of jung definitely we're talking about jung and his <laughs> work because there's a right. big separation there talk about yeah. the negredo um anyway so there's there's a big separation that that it's been co-opted and all, i mean i've heard it my entire life that alchemy is a philosophical metaphysical process and yet the way i understand it is these all these systems work together and there's a synthesis and the real alchemists that have always been working at it are coming at it from this angle the we've got the physical world you, you know we've got the fixed yeah. sulfur calcination the yep. salt the body you know right all this the, along with the spirit and the soul with the sulfur and the mercury all yeah. this stuff coming together just like the bodies the outer bodies the physical body the spiritual body the the nervous body all yeah. this and what when you say psychology and alchemy today that's 
that's pretty much what people think. The rest of it's hogwash. Yeah, well, you know, hell, I'd rather have people think that at least some of it is applicable than none of it, you know, if I stand back and get real objective. But it's always been kind of the burr under my saddle, to use a Western term, that psychology definitely co-opted alchemy. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, like racial appropriation and things like, well, social, social justice warriors talk about things like racial appropriation and things like that in these uh, modern times. And realistically, I would talk about the appropriation of alchemy and, re and its massive reductionism yes. um, by the psychological community. And, you know, I, I've said this to all my students for a long time. It's not that I disagree with you. Um, I think that Carl Jung had some really amazing insights and it's amazing that he came to the ideas and the philosophies that he did, never having really stepped into a laboratory or if he did step into a laboratory, it certainly wasn't under a proper alchemical context. And so, um, you know, realistically, if he would have gotten in, he would have been able to talk about destillatio, you know, the processes of dist distillation and what those archetypes mm -hmm. mean. He would have been able to talk about those in a really practical way saying, you know, there's something interesting. When you take a ferment, just like wine, and you pour that into a flask and you're seeing this colored material, okay, you have red wine inside of a flask, you're seeing this colored material and you apply heat. And now all of a sudden, these big, beautiful streaks start to come over. And, you know, it looks like the wine legs on a nice bottle of wine when you swirl it around the glass, these long streaks that are just beautiful. Th those start to distill over in your alembic and you start to see that. And it's just, it's a phenomena of nature you know, it's really based on specific gravity and heat density and stuff from a physical perspective. But if you don't know about any of that stuff, looking at it from the perspective of all people before about the 1800s, right? You, we look at sticking wine in a flask and applying heat. And then the first thing, the only thing that comes over really is the ethanol until the ethanol is completely distilled out. So if it's a 15% wine, then you get 15% by volume of that distillate that is alcohol. And all of the water and all of the color of that wine stays, stays behind in the boiling flask. And you say, ooh, this is interesting. This is a refinement of something within us, with, within our particular spirit. And then you can start to draw the correlations and say, what is it? How does my body psychologically and spiritually reflect what I just saw, knowing that what I distilled out was the spirit? of the material. So how, how, what does this look like inside of me? And what you can really say is all of your talents and all of your interests and all of those things, they need to be concentrated with their practice in order for you to get better at them, to really perfect them. And so mm. he would have been able to say like, oh, spirit is discipline. And mm -hmm. the more that you concentrate on something, the more you're able to build that discipline and isolate it so that that becomes the thing that you are really you know, intent on the, that you're really, really adept at because you've built so much discipline around, around it. And you'd be able to see without any shadow of a doubt that that's what's going on. And everything that's left behind, you know, the, the water, you can distill, you can change out your receiver and distill out that water. And that becomes phlegm. That also becomes clear water. And it has a little bit of scent from the source that it came from uh, after you distill it out a time or two. But um, for the most part, it's like a clean distilled water again. And you'd be able to know, okay, so like the majority of the animating fluids inside of my body, that's not the essence of it. That's just the, the material that is circulating through in order to carry the essence because we, we distill out the essence 
uh, with the spirit. For instance, if I get you to drink a shot of Poitin, which is uh, basically whiskey that's not been not been aged in an oak barrel, or if I get you to drink vodka, or if I get you to drink a silver tequila, anything that hasn't already been aged in oak, and you taste them all, they all taste different. So that part of the essence of that plant has transferred over with the, the spirit of that material. And you would be able to draw the correlations to the transpersonal aspects of yourself that these things correspond to. And so this is where I, I get kind of blown away that Jung actually got to as far as he did with his postulations and theories and approach without ever really having stepped into the laboratory because he wasn't that far off. But there are so many things that psychologically are talked about that don't really have any substantial basis when you get into the laboratory and you really start working with it. So, you know, people have a tremendous background in Jung and they think, oh, yeah, I'm very familiar with alchemy. They get into the laboratory <laughs> and pretty much all of that goes right up. Well, the, you know, you can do, you can look at the, the names of the base material and derive a lot. If you go in, you don't know a thing about Jung and uh and or anyone that's talking about this stuff from a psychological standpoint and you go in and you look at just the titles like we were talking about earlier sulfur is the soul right yes and and on down mercury is the spirit salt is the body i mean this stuff is applicable in a lot of stuff salt lot's wife turns around and turns into salt the salt of the earth i mean we have all these correspondences yes that uh, the ash i mean how important is that and so these if you're an intelligent person and you're coming from even an inkling of of some sort of philosophical leaning and pushing towards the idea of language and distilling the language and trying to extrapolate what you need from it then the word and the languaging of alchemy is very rich yeah yeah well and i mean it's i think that's probably why it got you know so to say co-opted by a psychological realm is because there's so much there like you say it's so rich you can draw from it and you can extrapolate inspiration in any myriad number of ways and um yeah, I, I, realistically, that's that's kind of my goal. Whether people do decide to just be, you know, psychological application, I still want to teach them about the laboratory practices and about the the more deep psychological applications of it beyond just uh, Jungian psychology in order to be able to add a little bit of depth and a little bit of more accuracy to uh, the correlations that they're drawing or the approach that they have in purifying the psyche or, you know, going on the hero's journey or you know, any of these other things that we hear about where is brought up and continually used in a kind of a misappropriated way. Not as bad as, you know, people who uh, say, oh, I do alchemical basket weaving, you know, or whatever. Oh um, my God. But still. It's like uh, Instagram pretty. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. It's like, it, it's a widely misunderstood term. Like oftentimes I'll tell people like, they'll say, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, technically I'm an alchemist, but I, I focus in on Spagiria. And they're like, alchemy is way cool. I make some morning elixirs and blah, blah, blah. Oh, it's, like, Lord. it's like, well, that's great. That's a good start. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's not really in the same vein even. No, it's not. But this is one of the things, like for me, with 
in particular Jung. I I don't read modern Jungians, and I I I've really always stuck with Jung's work. And then the people right around him that were getting all sloppy with him because it was, nothing was clinical, and the, they were working on each other. And so, but that led me into so alchemy had always been. Let me put it this way: alchemy had always been out there for me as something I love, and I was seeing it in the magical world, and that's the world I was brought up in and so i would see it in the rosicrucian works and yeah all, yeah all that's the main that's a main yeah. corpus i mean you hear that's it in freemasonry source. and other yeah. things but you really get it concentrated in rosicrucian yeah absolutely and so those images have always spoken to me and then when i encountered it in in like psychology and alchemy one of jung's books and then you know just later on i started to have this desire to understand the physicality of getting in a real lab and at that time there i mean you should you know this there was so little available there were so few people to go to and then when when the internet comes on it's just amazing how hard it was to get a real discussion on alchemy going yeah it's always been you know just small little circles of interest and you know (laughs) You're real lucky if you came across those circles because they didn't advertise too heavily, you know? No, not at all. So, yeah, it was, yeah, it's, it's always pretty much been like that. I mean, even when alchemy was kind of at its heyday, um, the actual people who knew things were actually dwarfed by the number of people who didn't know things who claimed to be an alchemist. And so, you know, the, the threat of authenticity there has always been a very small pool to draw from. And like you said, it still is. I mean, that's why I'm thrilled that you're so close to me. I'm, I'm so like. Well, and you, you, you know about Robert Bartlett too, right? Yes. Yeah. So Robert Bartlett's up in your neck of the woods. He's, he's up in Marysville on the Tulalip Indian reservation out there, Native American reservation. And um, yeah, absolutely fantastic uh, teacher. You know, he's, He's got so much experience. He's been practicing since before I was even born, actually. So, you know, when I, when people uh, really enjoy the path that I'm on, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of people like Robert Bartlett, who, you know, even though I've learned some things from Robert, he wasn't my primary teacher. I'm self-taught, but uh, his works have lended greatly. Like even before he had published books, he had published a paper with the Paracelsus Research Society called the Thermal Decomposition of the Metal Acetates where he's talking about how to be able to perform uh, the separation of metal uh, acetates like gold acetate or, you know, uh, cupric acetate or any of these other types of uh, acetate minerals and perform a dry distillation of them to be able to yield an acetone as the spirit of that metal and the oil of that metal, like the oil of gold, for instance, and then mm-hmm. also uh, the body of that material for various pathways for continuing with uh, the creation of the philosopher's stone or other more advanced medicines. And so, you know, he's, he's just been a powerhouse ever since like 1984, 1985, you know, uh, somewhere in there when he started, and maybe it could have been even a little earlier than that, but that's when, when Frater Albertus died, that's really when Robert Bartlett, as we know of him today, that that's really kind of when he started, everything else was just training. (laughs) So it, it Frada Albertus for I'm sure there are tons of people don't know who he is, but I and I so I feel like perhaps maybe you should give him a little airtime. Yeah, sure. Uh 
Man, I'd like to sing that guy's praises as often as possible. Um, Frater Albertus ran, uh, his name is Dr. Albert Riedel, but he went by Frater Albertus, Frater being the Latin term for brother that uh, pretty much everybody in the Rosicrucian uh, society, if it's a female that you're talking to, you call her soror or sister. And if it's a male, you call him frater, which means brother. So at any rate, he, he decided to go by the name Frater Albertus uh, for all of his alchemical work. And he uh, had learned, I think, under Alberto Pincaldi when he was in Switzerland. And that was his whole, whole lineage that uh, had been passed on to him. And eventually he moved to the United States and was involved uh, at Rosicrucian Park San Jose teaching alchemy classes uh, by Orson Greaves. And, or maybe it's Orson Graves. I can't remember if it's Greaves or Graves. But anyway, um, they were teaching practical alchemy classes in the Rosicrucian order at that time. This would have been roughly between the 40s to 60s, if I remember right. And then uh, Orson started to fall off. And they started trying to get a few other teachers. And eventually, like, it just wasn't the same after he died. And um, they couldn't keep it afloat for one reason or the other. And so they didn't have any more alchemy classes of their own. And Frater Albertus uh, had moved to Utah and found this wonderful place off of uh, 13th East and or maybe a 700 East and 3300 South in uh, Salt Lake and decided that he was going to open up an entire location for 12 students at a time to come in, bunk, stay on the on site for 14 days, two weeks, and to study day in and day out, basically Monday through Friday, uh, eight hours a day, plus the time that it took to oversee the lab work. So oftentimes distillations are going through the night or a sublimation is going and you have to wake up, and you have to check on it. And um, so he, he hosted that and that, that was known as the Paracelsus Research Society that was here in Salt Lake City, Utah. And um, he died before I was born, two years before I was born. So I didn't get the opportunity to meet him, but I ended up meeting a lot of his students. Um, I met them first at the International Alchemy Conference, which was held in Las Vegas in 2007. And again in 2008, and I think they were guests of honor. Um, they tried to get all of the living students of Frater Albertus together, I think in 2009 in uh, Long Beach, California when they had it then. But um, I got to meet a lot of these people. I got to meet Frater Albertus's daughter and other folks like that. And so I've been able to inherit actually a lot of materials uh, from those students, uh, written materials, you know, little tips and tricks, a lot of labware that, uh, you know, especially because most of the materials that I have today from Paracelsus Research Society came to me through one of their secretaries and office managers. Her name was Viola Engel. And her and her husband, Norm, were students of Frater Albertus, and they were also students of uh, Jean Dubuis and the philosophers of nature and had studied with uh, uh, Jack, or, uh, yeah, Jack Glass and Russ House um, in the early 90s. So they, they had this long tradition of, you know, 30 years almost of being in alchemy and all of these materials, and, and those ended up making their way to me. So... Um, largely my tradition, even though I'm self-taught, if it wasn't for those materials, I, would, I never would have been where I'm at today. And so that's um, for sure a huge part of my tradition is uh, the Albertus slash Dubuis tradition, which are very, very so close. So close, in fact, that you could hardly say that there's any differentiation, maybe just slightly in approach or character, but not really in, in terms of uh, what you draw away from the work. So yeah, Frater Albertus, major, major, probably the biggest name possibly besides Jean Dubuis uh, in the alchemical community throughout the entire 20th century. 
And uh, yeah, hats off to him and hats off to Jean Dubuis because all of us in, in the United States, especially, are standing on their shoulders uh, for our alchemical tradition that, that is very well alive and still practiced today. It's having a renaissance, it appears. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the cycles of the universe are actually relatively similar. Uh, there, there's more harmonizing aspect that's happening right now, but the, the cycles of awakening and, um, you know, realistically, the Renaissance was born out of a form of dark ages of people living according to a convention and having lost ancient wisdom. And yes. if you take a look at that definition of it and look at where we're at today, living in a particular tradition, having lost our ancient wisdom <laughs> and needing to rebirth that in some way, have it come to the for forefront. We're, we've already seen things like this with, uh, you know, festival culture over the last, you know, 20 years or whatever is really growing very popular. That, that kind of thing is how renaissance uh, start in general is uh, rebirth of ideas, coming back to tribalism, but in new ways, expressing art, music, and culture, and mathematics, and ideas, and so on and so forth. That's what really, those are the, the baking ingredients, so to speak, to bake the bread of a Renaissance culture. And we're, we're deep in the oven already. <laughs> all, all the ingredients have been mixed, and we're baking, so. Which makes it all the more interesting that current events have pretty much killed festival culture completely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things that you can see is that any establishment that's trying to maintain the tradition that mm -hmm. they know, and realistically, in the modern age, this isn't much different than it was back then. It's financing industry. Because what is finance, large, largely, is what is pushed upon the people. And it doesn't matter whether you go back to ancient Mesopotamia or whether you look at it right now. It's just like those are the things. where Wherever the money is, that's kind of the life source of the astral plane for most individuals now. You don't think that you have security unless you have money. It's just that simple. You don't think that you can save for the future if you can't eat tonight. And so money becomes the symbol for all of those things. And uh, just whatever people want to finance, wherever they put their money, that's the thoughts that are going to be funded that eventually precipitate into the physical experience that we have. And this is why when people say, you know, you vote with every dollar that you spend, it's absolutely true. And the same thing is true about your own personal health and well-being and so on and so forth. If you spend a lot of your time and a lot of your money on getting healthy, on breaking away from the system, on earning your independence, those are the fruits that are going to show up because that's what you planted earlier in the year, uh, yes. so to speak. And if you you know, are, are focusing on different things that are not aligned with that goal or just going with the status quo, then you become a tool to push forward the, the goals of the financiers, as opposed to driving the money and, and getting the financiers to invest in the things that you really want. Uh, because again, the financiers, they, they are just trying to put their money where it's going to produce the best return. Anybody can be a financier. Anybody can ultimately be rich overnight, realistically, depending on the way people think and what they value. And, uh, you know, what I like about alchemy is that alchemy shows us principles. And I like to, you know, I, I took a class, it was a financial class many years ago by a brilliant, um, uh, he was in the insurance industry and financial securities, all sorts of things. I don't even know how to describe him, but his name is Marvin Reynolds. And uh, he's got a book out, I forget the name of it, but Marv always used to say 
that there are really three things. There are values and values are individual and they're personal. So what do you place value on? And then there are principles and principles are things that don't give a shit about you or your personal values. They're true regardless. They're like a perennial thing that constantly show us the way that things objectively work. And when you value principles for long enough and live in that, that state, then you develop virtue. And virtue is when values have been perfectly aligned to the principles such to the degree that a virtue is now determined. So it's basically the same thing as in alchemy where we'll take like a, a fixed sulfur or, or a volatile sulfur like an essential oil in the vegetable kingdom and distill it with an, uh, an ethanol and perform all these cohabations over and over and over and over and over again in order to intrinsically marry them together that end material is virtuous in the same way that when your values practically match up with perennial principles of the universe and of objectivity, now you've developed uh, some sort of virtue in this life. And ideally, I think that if people of the modern day can begin to grasp that, really tangibly grasp that and start valuing the things that, and, and the ideas and the art, and the, you know, whatever it is, and putting their money where their mouth is, quite literally, to turn a phrase, um, things things can change very, very rapidly. Uh, I just heard recently that there was a group of uh, African-Americans who decided to get together and they purchased 19 acres way out of the city because they were sick of you know, all of the inner city politics of this and that, and black versus white, and BLM, and all the, they were like, ah, to hell with all yeah. of that, man. Yeah. We're just gonna go do our own thing. And they they got like 10 families together, 19 acres, and uh, they started their own little their city and stuff. And, you know, the everybody's always trying to say, oh, you know, black people are underpaid and they can't do that. Well, then how did they do that? Or, you know, white people are oppressive and they own all the land. Well, you know, somehow they were able to find a way to be able to purchase it. So, you know, people just really need to get behind what they can do and what they want to do, as opposed to focusing so heavily on what they can't do or the problems that currently exist within the system. It's like Buckminster Fuller always said, you cannot defeat a system by trying to go against it because the resistance is just way too big. You have to create a new system that makes the old system obsolete. And by doing that, people will come around. So I think, I think that applying and weaving alchemy into our social fabric regardless of the application, because I don't expect everybody to step into the lab uh, and always practice lab work or get interested in spagyria or, you know, whatever else. But I do expect them, just like you would have a general education, to know about alchemy and its processes so that you can derive it away and apply it in your life, because there's not one aspect of life, not one thought, not one thing, not one anything that you can think or conceive of or see that doesn't abide by alchemical processes already, because that's just its nature. That's what it does. Yeah, that's, and this is where some of the great you know, philosophical minds, why they were gravitating to the processes, even if they weren't in the lab. This is why they were gravitating to these processes and pushing that idea further before yeah. it became uh, thinned out. It, you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, I, was I think we should talk Canadian to say processes from now on. Processes. <laughs> Good suggestion. <laughs> vitamins uh, i oh let's see oh my goodness i totally got derailed on my thought um 
Oh, 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 oh. So with all this, with with all this, the idea of, and it's kind of, I mean, this all ties in together, but the idea of and through the process of alchemy, and I'm talking about in the lab when you're working with the prime materials here mm -hmm. and how you get to something more substantive, something purified. One of the ways, and this is the side note to where I'm going, one of the things I feel like has brought the idea of the chemistry, the lab work into the populace is this new wave of understanding marijuana. Terpings now is has yes. become a common word, right? People understand yep. what that means. <laughs> oh, man, that is funny that you mentioned that because, you know, five to seven years ago when I was trying to train people who, you know, they pay me, they'd be like, oh, I know this Spagyria has something to do with the next level of cannabis. Can you teach me? And I'm like, yeah, let's pull the essential oil of cannabis. And their eyes were just like, what the hell do you even mean? And now today, everybody's using the chemical terms. It's like, oh yeah, there's tons of triterpenes and terpenes, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, oh, okay, so cool. It's all of a sudden, like it, it came on overnight. People got really hip on uh, terpenes after like a couple of conventions where people were talking about it. So <laughs> Yeah, it's very interesting. But what were you going to say about that? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Well, no, no, I, w I wanted to definitely bring light to that. It's something I've noticed. And I think because of that awareness through cannabis, it's doing a favor to yes. to the actual work of of all this, all this goodness. I wanted to look at the idea of immortality. Okay. And that was, and that's, you know, that's very much tied into some of the greater work that's talked about in some of the old tomes. And yeah. I, so where I'm going with that is open-ended. What, what are your thoughts on that idea? And how does that play out with some of the elixirs that have come through over, over our historical documents and where, where this idea of life extension now finds its way into the laboratory? Yeah, so, you know, immortality is discussed in most of the world's alchemical texts, whether you're talking about India or China or the West, and every different alchemist has had, had their own way about going about it, especially that was like one of the peak things of why, as a practical alchemist, there would be a practical need beyond just demonstration for the Philosopher's Stone is that immortality is granted to those who give their lives tremendous amount of things to research and to do. And there is so many uh, avenues and so many secrets that nature has yet to offer that within the course of a single human life, you can really only scratch upon the surface, regardless of how we look at it and like, whoa, this person did all these things. Okay, that's still just barely scratching the surface, maybe even just blowing away the dust off the box, not even opening it up. So um, being able to, if you have a very large drive and determination to be able to look at these things, write these things, know these things, work for the benefit of humanity and so on and so forth, then longevity or immortality, regardless of how you want to describe that uh, or define it, becomes a very practical thing. It's not just something like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to live so long, you know, like most people do. And they even <laughs> say it with like that very same cadence. And, you know, um, it's not cool. If you don't, if you haven't processed your shit, if you don't know how to process grief, if you don't know how to process trauma, if you don't know how to compartmentalize properly, if you don't have 
path working uh, things already sorted out with uh, you know practical ways of working with the the tree of life. If you don't have you know herbs behind you and really good clean foods and all these other things, no, you're just creating perpetual suffering actually. <laughs> and so immortality uh, and they talk about this in in a lot of texts or the the way in the European text that they would say is like if by the grace of God you manage to achieve your work then you're you, like God has basically said, you, you're, you're a-okay, you're good to go, you've earned the badge to be able to, to get some life extension. But even at that immortality, um, we don't know that people have actually ever been truly completely immortal, but the amount of longevity that you get, you know, two, three, sometimes four or 500 years, uh, yeah. according to some of the, the legends, you know, I, I literally call them that at this point as legends because there's been nobody in recent years that has really even come close to that. All of the greatest alchemists you did of our age typically die in their 70s or 80s. And I know there's people out there like, yeah, but did they really? I know that people saw Frater Alberta in Switzerland after he died. Right, it's, there was that myth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, well, okay, maybe. Um, but still, I don't think that that's probably the case because, you know, like Frater Albertus, for instance, he got very sick after he got defamed. He was sleeping with half of his office staff, his female <laughs> office staff, as a married Mormon, you know? And so, yeah, that was quite the debacle. And, um, you know, Viola explained it to me and she had the most uh, utmost love and respect for, for Frater. But she said, if that man had one character flaw, it was that he climbed too highly on a pedestal that he built for himself. And the fall is what killed him. Mm -hmm. Oh, often. I mean, that's a parable. Yeah. Yep. So I think that that's, uh, you know, one of those things to remember is that, yeah, Frater was psychically gifted as, as you could possibly be from all of the accounts, even from his daughter's accounts and so on and so forth. He was very adept in, in the laboratory. He had this charming way of going about life and things, but he still suffered and he still had a lot of human shit that was not yet processed. And uh, not to say that you have to be at a completely clear place in order to achieve immortality, but you would think that you'd be a little bit further beyond that. Otherwise you would be creating very perpetual suffering. What's it going to look like for your wife that you've loved, even if you did cheat on her with multiple people? <laughs> um, you know, what if, when, when she dies, how are you going to handle that? What about your children when they die? What about, you know, all these other things? It's, it, there's just a whole lot there that people really need to think about. Um, you know, you think about the loss of losing a dog or a pet or something like that. And you really, you have to put things like that into context. Plus you can't stay in one place for very long because you don't age very quickly. And so people say, like, they see you and they're like, oh, yeah, you're in your late 60s, early 70s for the last 10 years, Bob. Uh, <laughs> what, what's going on? <laughs> Got to keep moving. Yeah, you do. And it's, so it, it, it would become problematic, actually, in a lot of cases. But longevity, um, in general, even in the Taoist text, is really created for those beings that give themselves tremendous amount of purpose and are constantly serving humanity or holding space for uh, humanity to be able to, uh, you know, achieve a next, a next evolution, uh, an upgrade and so on and so forth. And um, I know that there's also some, you know, conspiracies, so to speak, about uh, most of the financiers and the, you know, the 13 financing families, they know about alchemy and they practiced alchemy and they're performing sociological alchemy. And I would just say bullshit. If they were, we'd be in a much better place.
people would they would have a whole lot more sensibility and a whole lot more alchemical material uh, pushed into the mainstream and not just, you know, I'm not just talking about Babylonian magic, you know, serving Moloch or whatever, uh, which seems to be what they're really into. It's like baser theurgy instead of alchemical work. True alchemical work indicates that a person is really doing the internal transformations as well as the external transformations. And there's a space between those two that is also getting transformed, which we would call spirit. And um, I think that, yeah, it I've never seen, like John H. Reed, for instance, okay, a good friend of mine, a mentor of mine in certain cases, a colleague of mine in other cases. Okay, John H. Reed III lives in upstate New York. He wrote, you know, the complete, I forget what it is, complete alchemy guidebook or something like that years ago. It's in PDF form. It's no longer in print. So if you can actually find a physical copy, it's, that's awesome. But uh, they're typically really expensive when you do find them. That being said, uh, you know, he, when he got into this work, he was heavy into Satanism and just wanted power and money and girls and, you know, whatever else. And, you know, the work in and of itself changed him real fast. That's just the way that it always works is that you, you think you're working on the materials and you have some sort of material drive, but if you're awake and aware at all, the materials are actually working on you. And if you're not, you know, if you're not actually getting that out of it, then you're not practicing alchemy. Maybe you're practicing mundane chemistry or something, but um, I still don't think that they would be using that uh, for a financial model. It's much easier to create numbers out of thin air than it is to get in the laboratory. <laughs> That's always something I've taken away from some of the, the older tomes on, on the work is that, and I think that's where people like Jung came in and extrapolated this, is that the work was showing up in, the, in, their, world, in their world. They were changing, and if the vessel cracked and, you know, and everything came out that was reflecting in their life if it was sealed and they were able to move to the next stage this was also reflecting in their life that whole as above so below aspect right so and and, and that is also just the idea just the idea of that of doing the physical work in the laboratory and then gaining something deeper from it whether that's in your outer world, in your in your dream world, in your, you know, the religion of what's going on within you, those yeah. kinds of things. The work always shows, and we see this just in our lives, too. I mean, it, it's so apparent. This is why I've always liked the Chinese, old Chinese practitioners. You know the stories. I'll probably get criticized on this again, but there's just so many stories of the master's you know, by the time someone comes up to get diagnosed, they, I mean, traditionally, they'd be at the end of a long haul, and they'd have them diagnosed by the time they got to the table. And there are tons of these stories and uh, in Chinese. Yeah. And so because they watched how they walk, they watched their character and their skin and their nails and, and stuff. And then the master would say this, this and that. Yeah. And so these stories are out there, whether they're nonsense or not there's something to the story and to extrapolate from the idea of the story and so there's a process here there's always a process i like the idea of frauders messiness in his own life because that's that's one of the things you see in anyone that's pushing forward with stuff that that's why i like 
Jung and, and Freud and those people, they were all fucking each other. They were all from, you know what I'm saying? Jung yeah. had mistresses. He was working on his patients. He was working these ideas and theories out. It was happening. And so, you know, the fact, and now it's so clinical and, you know, there's moral, moralistic stuff going on, but people that are down and dirty in the lab are getting down and dirty. And with that, I was wondering when you're in the process of something new, when you're when you're pushing forward in your work and you know you're you're onto something bigger and new and i gather this from from your site too i mean this is the whole process of why you do this right you're, yeah. you're moving into these new people don't understand there's a planetary aspect to, there's timing involved with all this there is so yeah everything is very specific and rare in in that sense yeah, it, yeah, it, it, definitely. And it takes so much split testing to be able to actually determine whether the old dudes were writing about it at face value and telling the truth or whether there were little double blinds in there. And if it was a double blind, does it mean this or this or this? Or And you just have to, you have to develop a ton of mental buoyancy really to begin to think outside of the box and to also think logically. So you have to, you know, you have to start small and know the things that they, they talked about that were really easy, like distilling wine and so on and so forth and get the imagery down and understand it all in order to make sense of the later works where, you know, it's, it's actually quite complicated imagery. And oftentimes there are double blinds that are thrown in so that you don't know the actual solvent or the actual salt that they're putting in there. And you kind of have to put things together. And so that investigative work is really, it, it's for my personality, it's just right up my alley. It's what I love to do. I've always loved investigating things. And um, that's where all the split tests really come in for me. So I, every time that I perform something, I do three or four things that I know are going to be wrong in the hopes that one of them might be right. And that's, that's the nature of split testing and finding out, you know, how to, how to actually work and what they actually said and demystifying those old texts and bringing them to the light of, of modern day and giving them a proper context in the modern day too. So a noble cause. Yeah, was, fun. At any rate. Definitely. <laughs> and and educational. Um, I was curious if there are any astrological correlations that you adhere to during your work. Well, hell or, uh, or does yeah. that does that even help? Is it a thing? Well, it's taught within the Rosicrucian corpus of, of alchemy, the Rosicrucian inspired. So both Jean Dubuis and Albertus uh, and their lineages talk about this. And there are other lineages that do as well, that astrological timing is absolutely everything. And they would say that, um, you know, so there's sulfur hours, there's a spirit level, and there's a, a salt level for every single day of the week. And for instance, um, on Monday, the spirit level is governed over by the moon, moon day, right? So it's Luna governs over the spirit of that whole day. So if you're working on things that are spirits, like fermenting something or distilling something, you might actually want to start it on a Monday in order for it to have that, that particular spirit on the macrocosmic level. Um, and then the salt hours, they start at midnight, and then there are seven equal ones throughout the day, one for each of the planets. And so at sunrise, it matches up. So sunrise Monday, uh, approximately like 3.50 to about 6 or 7 or so, is going to be 
um, typically your, your first hour uh, where the moon is in the salt hour right then. So if I were combining a spirit and a salt, uh, Monday sunrise would be the ideal time to do it. And then there's also sulfur hours. So if we're working with extracting something or so on and so forth, and those start from uh, sunrise and they change every single hour. So you get, you know, 3.5 or so rotations of uh, all of those planets every single day that go through in the sulfur hours. So you have like a couple of hours every day that you could be working on sulfur or initiating sulfur tasks. So that, that's just on the microcosmic or macrocosmic level. On the microcosmic level, then you also have to take the planetary and constellational determination of the substance that you're working on and cast you know, charts as far as you can in the future when you know that there's going to be an ideal uh, election in order to be able to work on that particular material. And so the, it, it can get really, really complicated. And uh, Tim Wilkerson has a site called alchemyastrology.com. And he published a book a couple of years ago called Alchemy Astrology, Lost Key to the Philosopher's Stone that uh, was really, really good and showed the methodology that Frater Albertus had taught all of his students to create the grander counts and the lesser counts and find out how many uh, positive influences there are for your work and how many negative influences and stuff. And so, you know, I was balls deep in all of that for a really long time. Um, what ended up happening though, is that, uh, I started performing IDF analysis and finding out like, Hey, is this actually what's happening to the materials that I'm working with either in sidereal charts or, you know, Vedic astrology versus, you know, modern true to form sidereal or all these other things. And being able to kind of vet uh, ideas and flush them out and get corroborative, corroborative evidence behind uh, the research that I was doing. And what I found was that um, actually our calendar and the way that we're keeping time and even to a larger degree, the way that we're tracking planets, even with uh, the, the sidereal zodiac that I have, um, it's still off actually by like up to five to seven degrees in some of the larger uh, constellations like Pisces and Virgo. And so there needs to be new methodologies actually created in order for us to do that. And also I'm realizing that most of the traditional correspondences are not actually true. They're upheld somewhere in the astral as an egregore. And so when you're performing rituals or working with that, you're drawing power from the egregore, drawing power from, from the thought-based realm but that only goes so far. If the person's ailments that correspond to ancestrale, uh, actually, the stars and the planets don't derive their power from the astral plane, the way that we would think about it with thoughts and emotions. They derive it from the higher astral, which is actually governed over by the planets and, and the, the constellations. And so you need to harness the actual positions of them, not just the thought bases of them. And that's been a very difficult thing actually to uh, come to terms with in my alchemical work because I'm always striving for the very best, the most potent and, and labored under the delusion that I was doing that for years, only come to find out that there's actually more deeper layers that need to be peeled back in order to find the actual, uh, actual workable truth of it here in the modern day. And in fact, you know, I've got a really good episode. It hasn't released yet. Might release this month or next month. He's really busy, but, uh, Occult, Greg Kaminsky of Occult of Personality interviewed me and we went into depth actually about that topic, uh, uh, just the correspondences and, and other things like that 
actually being off and not having substantial basis in uh, the actual cosmology that, that seems to be objective and really controlling and governing our destinies here on Earth. So That's cool. And it's interesting, the idea of pulling in spirit magic, if you will, whatever, work with egregores yeah. into your alchemical physical work just makes it even more of a magical process in my head. You know, I don't know why. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, alchemy isn't magic, but most alchemists have studied magic. And so we incorporate a lot of things like we might imbue uh, a particular product with an archangel. You know, we, we might use um, the rose cross and be able to create a sigil of a name or a quality or a planet or something that we're actually trying to imbue inside of the material and let it digest on a piece of paper like that. We might actually, you know, pray over it, perform ritual, you know, use wands, do candle magic, you know, all of all the, the, the pathways are as diverse as the magical pathway of the practitioner. But yeah, the alchemy isn't magic, but oftentimes magical practitioners have an affinity for it. And so those two have been very intimately intertwined since the days of Marsilio Ficino and Paracelsus and cool. even further back than that a bit. And I put a link to that podcast in the show notes. So when it does come out, people can find it there. Awesome. Cool. Just Thank you. Point. Sure. No problem. So I had, a, I had a question. I'm going to change topics right now. Uh, someone asked about celiac disease and how it seems like people are s suddenly getting it more and more. Do you know? Oh, anything? yeah, yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's absolutely no problem for me to talk about. And it's really no mystery. I, I think that what they're going to find in just a number of years, and they've already, so many doctors have already found this and talked about it. It's just that it's not, you know, mainstream, so to speak. But celiac really comes from, uh, an, it's an autoimmune condition that happens uh, where your body starts to eat away at various parts of itself because it's used to breaking down the uh, proteins inside of, of wheat and your microbiome has actually been compromised due to a poisonous form of wheat. So you eat the type of wheat that has the poison on it. And the first time it just weakens your microbiome. The next time that you eat it, your CD8 plus T cells and other uh, lymphocytes end up detecting that it actually is a poisonous material and they start to eat away at it. And then what ends up happening is that your body's natural enzyme capacity because of the microbiomes and also because of the autoimmune conditions and, and the waste that are produced inside of the body, they just kind of go completely to the wayside. And so it's no coincidence that we have seen completely depleted agriculture, eating either nutrient void materials that are basically just fillers or also eating nutrient void materials that have been sprayed with pesticides that alter hormones and endocrinology, of course. And also uh, reduce the microbiome. And uh, what, they're, what they're trying to blame it on is genetics. They're trying to say, oh, this is genetics. And realistically, all of your genes are absolutely perfectly stable. The genes just tell your body what natural deficiencies or what natural uh, disorders are going to end up showing up as a result of toxicities, poisons, or other causes of disease. So they're really just the guider of how that uh, autoimmune system reacts. Like for instance, some people will have celiac disease. Other people are going to develop Hashimoto's. Other people are going to develop uh, just say, you know, Lupus different allergies or, and yeah. things like that. And uh, it's all just autoimmune response, but it starts with healing. It really starts with having a, a really good analysis, 
to be able to see what the cause of that autoimmune trigger was because just because you ate um you know pesticide food that doesn't necessarily mean that that was the actual trigger it could have had its cause of disease in the astral it could have also had it due to uh, natural reasons like for instance the pancreas was uh not working very well and wasn't tonified and so you developed a carbohydrate metabolism disorder it could be because of leaky gut which most oftentimes it is like 90 percent plus of the time and so on and so forth. And so uh, we, you have to be able to find these things and be able to know what the root cause of it is in order to be able to treat it on the level of its own causation. Not to say that I ever treat anything because I don't and I can't, but what I do is I research things and oftentimes my uh, clients, more often than not actually, will always say like, oh wow, yeah, you did this thing, you sent these broadcasts or frequencies or I took this spagyric for a little while and now I don't have these symptoms. And it's like, oh, okay, noted. Thank you. And eventually we'll present enough of those case studies that, uh, you know, we're, we're moving towards a peer review, of course, with it all so that other people can do the very same thing. And we can peer review and find things out and just, just work with a whole new system of, of uh, energetic medicine really is the end goal. But, you know, that just starts with the humble research of split testing and working with clients now. And so, yeah, celiac though is, is uh, typically not a problem. You just have to find the level of causation, you know, get work on it. It's, it's all the more mysterious conditions that people have where like, you know, it's like one off kind of things. You don't have a very large portion of the population that has things like this, like uh, good shepherd's disease uh, happens in the kidneys. And I think it also attacks the lungs sometimes, but like things like that, they don't happen that frequently. And so it's really hard for us as a researcher to be able to even know what to research or what to investigate in order to try and eliminate it uh, most of the time. So, but yeah, celiac disease, Hashimoto's, all of the common uh, autoimmune conditions, they pretty much all have a similar source. And most of them come down to a compromised or damaged microbiome, uh, at least on the physiological level. And there may be other things accompanying that that, that um, led to that trigger, but. Yeah, uh, there's not one particular cure. It's not a one size fits all either within the basis of my research. And so unfortunately I can't say, oh yeah, if you have it, here's all you need to do. It's like, and every, every case is actually very individual and you need to, to uh, treat it as if it were individual. Cool. Is there a, someone else asked this too, if, if you had a specific diet that you recommend people follow? Oh man, if I wanted to get a kick, I, this would really be the time to, just tell people to do something and just sit back and watch to see what happens. Um, I'll tell you what though, uh, in terms of diet, man, I've, I've personally been all over the place. I was raw vegan for a while. I was vegan for a while. I was bhakti uh, diet for a while, which is a form where you cut out all foods of, of ignorance and passion is what they're called. Um, and so I didn't eat any onions. I didn't even eat any root vegetables at one time because you had to kill the organism. Oh, it was just uh, fruits, flowers, seeds, nuts. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I went completely off the wall with all of this stuff, just trying to see what was perfect for my own body. I stopped eating beans because of Pythagorean suggestions, you know, like yeah, yeah. so, so many different types of things. And eventually, <laughs> once I started learning about biodynamic gardening and got into the Western Price Foundation and other things like that, biodynamic farming, I started incorporating yeah. a lot more uh, meats into my diet and, and animal proteins and all these other things to the point today where I will eat just about anything, but it has to be sourced really well. And then I also take into account traditional Chinese medicine 
yes. guidelines as best as possible. I'm still learning TCM. Um, so I'm not like a, a very good, reliable resource for uh, dietary advice for this. But, um, you know, I, yes, I personally... Listen, none of this is medical advice. We're not medical practitioners. We're just chatting. So. Yeah, exactly. We're totally just chatting. But um, for me, it comes down to understanding my constitution, understanding the season of the year, and understanding any sort of imbalances that I might have at present, and being able to only eat foods that are going to help to nourish uh, my body and to be able to uh, mitigate those imbalances and keep everything balanced. So if like, you have too much damp heat yeah. or cold, cold uh, spleen tea, for instance, you wouldn't want to drink ice cold drinks and you wouldn't want to eat like ice cream and, you know, definitely yeah. not uh, like eat some spicy pizza and then some ice cream. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's things like that. And, you know, the, all sorts of different foods have different kinds of qualities inside of TCM. And so for me, it's learning about those qualities, learning about how I'm combining the foods or eating them separately in order to just get that one particular uh, type of thing. And then trying to balance out my particular body because Based on my experience and also IDF data, there's no one diet that is good for any, any individual for any length of time. You constantly have to be in a state of dy uh, dynamic uh, movement with your diet, and that deals largely with what's local and what's seasonal and what's available, but it also deals with your own personal constitution and things that, um, that could be out of balance. And if you eat for your constitution, that's going to be the very best diet uh, that I think is possible as opposed to dietary fads or, you know, veganism, you know, Pythagoreanism or any of these other things. So that, that would, that would be my answer. I, love, right on, right I started with the biodynamic uh, gardening a, a long time ago in New Mexico. It was my segue into permaculture. Yeah, and I too. Oh, yeah, it often is. And uh, Maria Thun's book, or however you pronounce her. Yeah, I, I, man, I got listeners tore me apart after Crow Triple Seven one time. They're like, it's pronounced Tune. She's German, Maria Tune. And I was okay, like, oh, yeah, okay. I know. I, it's, I was going to say that, but I held my tongue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. I put her principles to work. So I don't, you know, it's like, I may be pronouncing it wrong, but the book changed my life it, because yeah, I, actually exactly. walked, I walked her talk. So, it, whereas that's all right. Anyway, and also like you, I have tried a million different ways of uh, different nutritional ways of finding what was right for my constitution. And then it's ever changing. It's yeah. ever, and I always find when I get to this really great balancing stride, I'm able to pretty much have what I want, of course, with those basic tenets of well-sourced and seasonal and all, all those laurels yeah. that I think people should really look into and, and try and ride those kinds of waves because our temples, our vessels more so are so, they're specific. They're very specific. And it, it's, you know, in a way it's that whole snowflake thing devoid of political conversation with your vessel. It's a very specific thing Yeah, You're working with a lot of variables. And so it behooves one to experiment with yourself. And it's amazing yeah. to me how many people do not and how much resistance there is in the world to it. And so, yeah, I mean, realistically your body and your soul are in, in, in like, 
indelibly intertwined in this lifetime. You, you can't really, you know, if you don't have good health, then the quality of your thoughts and the quality of you acting out your volition is going to be so limited. You only get one body in this, this particular manifestation. So like, that's the only thing that you're actually guaranteed and given in this life. And so to put it at the forefront of the human experience, I've got to learn how to be able to sustain this in as healthy a way as possible. You would think that that would be the number one focus of everybody. And then once you get some sort of handle on that, then it's like everything else falls in line for you. But yeah, that, that one is, that's absolutely critical because if you aren't taking care of your own health and wellness, nobody else is going to be interested in doing it for you, to be perfectly honest. Like doctors, you can see how overtaxed they are. You can see yeah. how, you know, they've just become null and, and completely uh, numb to the experience of being able to, to help people because people aren't putting in any effort to be able to help themselves. Well, and that's the basis of all this, right? You've got yeah. to do the work. You have to do the work. Yeah. There's, there's no way out of it. You know, you can avoid it and avoid it and avoid it, but then you just get repercussions down the line and you have nobody to blame but yourself in most cases. Now, the, the only exception I'd say to that is that uh, historically speaking, people have not really taken into account the astral cause of disease, or if they have, they've done it in such a way like uh, the way that the Renaissance authors and, and modern day Judith Hill talks about uh, medical yes. astrology. And I found that to be, you know, I've studied that for years and worked with that system for a very long time. And I found it to be almost completely useless in the face of what actually causes astral diseases. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, all, all of my research has completely turned everything that I've learned about on my head. So, but that's one of those things, regardless, either way, it's like, you're, you're just born under a sign. And then the way that the position of the planets move after that determines whether you're going to get sick or not. And so in some ways you can't really help those things. Uh, if your parents are responsible, they get talismans made on the day of your birth. Uh, but you know, how many metallurgists do you have available to just make some talismans for you, for your baby on the day of their birth? I mean, it's, it's crazy. So yeah, IDF data is like the only thing that I've really found to be able to clear that out, uh, very well and reliably in the modern day. And, uh, God, I'll tell you, I, I, some of the people's issues, like over 90% of the people that I see have ancestrally issues. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's because I'm attracting the, the types of individuals that have the types of disease where they can't figure it out through any other thing. And so they don't mind throwing some research dollars uh, to see if we can come up with any leads. Um, or whether that's true across the board, you know, uh, there, there's still plenty of variables for me to say, but I can say very definitively, like over 90% of people that come to see me have ancestral issues as usually their number one cause of, uh, when we check the five entia, their number one causation of what's causing their symptoms. So that's been really fascinating for me and gives me a, a good perspective. It's like, man, people could do all the right things and live all the right way, take all the right herbs, take all the right and live completely in balance. And still you might get hit with disease, yeah. but you know, that's when it comes down to the sociological integration of, uh, and which will happen hopefully in the next 20 years of the types of information that I'm able to pull. And I'm sure there's other researchers out there pulling equally as, as magnificent information that we just don't have access to anymore. Um, and incorporating it into our society. So yeah, hopefully we all get awesomer and healthier and better over the next 15 to 20 years. I think it just depends on where people place their money. If they 
value uh, the medical system and keep using insurance from their work and other things to try and participate in that system, even though they don't trust it and don't like it, uh, then it's just going to continue to perpetuate. And if you put your money elsewhere to your local traditional Chinese medicine practitioners or Ayurvedic practitioners, yeah. medicine, or, you know, yep. research folks like myself, then maybe you can see a whole new future here in the next, you know, a very, very short period of time, really. So. That's what I do. I've been doing it a very, very long time. Would you break down on your website when people go there on the shop section with what you have? You've got the you've got tags on stuff. So very rare, the reviewed yeah. stuff, the must haves. Break that down for people that may be wanting to check out what you have. The must haves are when I was looking today, you know, all very appealing. Obviously, you're putting must have on it. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, really things that I suggest that everybody must have inside of their apothecary. It's not uh, a lot. You just have a few in there. Yeah, I think Moringa would probably be one of those, though. I'm not sure if that's one that you're looking at or not. But, um, you know, like Moringa, uh, Mumio. Um, God, yeah, there's a couple of them that come to mind that are just absolutely critical to have on hand because there's nothing else like it that you're going to be able to get or to make when you find yourself in a pinch. And yeah. these are just things that are absolutely critical. So, um, yeah, I put a, I put some suggestions like that on there. Um, yeah, like uh, other ones that are very rare. That means that either the herb is very, very difficult to get a hold of. Like for instance, um, the ginseng. I, I had yeah, my own. American ginseng. I <laughs> I worked with uh, a fellow who imports very large quantities of uh, raw herbs from the Orient, all over. You know, India, China, Taiwan, Tibet, Thailand. You know, Indonesia, all all over, and he found this twenty. Uh, 20 to 40 year old American ginseng that we were able to work on. And he commissioned me to make uh, the most advanced form of medicine that I could possibly make. And so there was uh, Mad Fred Junius's uh, spagyrics. I re had remembered reading years prior a formula for a crisis of angelica root. And so I was like, ah, well, yeah, I'll just work on, work on this the same way. Uh, even though it's not angelica, it's American ginseng root, but I did. And that's probably the most potent thing that I've got in my apothecary. And the chances of anybody, anybody listening to this, ever encountering a 20 to 40 year old ginseng plant is yeah. like one in a million. <laughs> like, you, like gold. <laughs> yeah, you probably, if you have seen it or have access to it, then you probably have land on the Eastern seaboard where you are like not letting people harvest ginseng and you're not harvesting yourself and you've owned the property for 20 or 30 years or more already. And so yeah. just like the chances of actually having that are astronomical. So um, yeah, that, and then also to make a crisis is not just a, a skip and a hop either. I mean, that's one of the most involved <laughs> forms of spagyric pharmacopoeia that you can possibly make. And so that one is just that's I outrageous. have it in my cart, right? It's before we went into the show. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's... Hopefully it's still there when the show ends. Yeah, exactly. I bet you it will be because it, it is a pretty large price tag because it's so rare and because the, the crisis is so difficult to make. I also have an elixir of it. I think the elixir is a little bit cheaper um, and it's equally as good. Uh, it's just that elixirs and clysi do two entirely different things. An elixir 
um, can be produced in pretty large quantities, actually, depending on the amount of salt that you add to the material. So I had more elixir to draw from than I had the, the chlysis. Mm -hmm. But um, in addition to that, the elixir works very much so on the physical constituents, and it contains a lot of uh, glycosides and other materials, whereas the chlysis contains a lot of the essential oil and volatiles mixed with all of the other forms of distilled uh, medicine. So it's, yeah, the chlysis is definitely a, a very strong, very potent form of medicine. I've only got chlysis, I have a few materials, but Moringa chlysis would be another one. And that one was made instead of with just roots, that was made with leaf, roots, seed pod. Um, yeah, the whole thing's edible. Yeah, so. flowers, yeah. Um, yeah. bark, you know, we, we yeah. threw all of the parts uh, in there. And that was a collaboration with uh, Moringa for Life is the name of their business. And um, yeah, so I love Moringa. It's so easy. It grows here like weeds. I have it in my garden. Really? Yes. And I've heard people out here where I live say they have trouble with it, but I can throw the seeds in the ground and they sprout. You know, you, you might be close enough to the banana belt there that I think that you're probably right. I think you could nice and temperate uh, pretty much all year long in a certain regard. You don't get too much snow and stuff. Usually people that have snow, the roots will freeze over and then they die then just don't come back the next year. But, um, you know, we grow it here in Utah. You can definitely grow it in Arizona and, and New Mexico and Texas, yeah. especially in California, Southern California and, you know, all, all these other places. So, and you can also grow it in pots inside because they don't get to be terribly big, to be perfectly honest. And you're constantly stripping them of their foliage. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, it's easy. It really does just grow. I mean, if you give yeah. it, if, if it doesn't freeze, it just grows. Yeah. It's easy. It's a friendly one. It is. Yeah. And it's probably one of the most important plants. Like if there is only one plant that I could tell people that you need, it would be cannabis. But if there is uh, two plants that I <laughs> yes. could tell people that they need, it would be uh, cannabis and moringa. Yeah. And I think that between those two, people can get a majority of their food and medicine needs actually. All in for, one. Yeah, all in one. Like, well, all in two, <laughs> I guess. But, yeah. yeah. So the sacred marriage. Yeah, exactly. And then, I, you know, I've got a bunch of other other tags on there, like, you know, newly released and a few other things. Every single month we release. So just today, I think earlier today, we sent out the monthly newsletter with five new products on there. I couldn't actually tell you what those five new ones were this month because um, I haven't looked at my own newsletter here. Nori takes care of all of that for us. <laughs> um, but, you know, those are always on the featured products page, along with any other products that are kind of new or, or really hot or trending at that present moment. And I don't mean trending in that people are buying them, but trending in that they're necessary based on the trends that are happening in the world today. So like liposomal vitamin C, Mumio, um you know oh, I, yeah i see you have the covid stuff right yeah, yeah, yeah exactly and then we've also got the uh moringa clysis without glycosides and moringa clysis with glycosides on that featured products page i think so you know there's those are always the things that are like 20 percent off or more on that page and there's always five products that are always 20 percent off the five products that we release every month into the apothecary there they always are 20 percent off for the entire month no coupon necessary so, uh, yeah, that's, um, and the peer reviewed stuff that you're constantly working towards as well, right? The ID, uh, IDF stuff. Yeah. IDF stuff. So yeah, that's, you know, I, I'm working for peer review on a few different 
uh, angles actually. But with the IDF work, what I'm trying to do is I'm actually training a, a person in Greece right now uh, who will be able to do and take the same readings. We've already played around a little bit and we're within like a point or two of each other, uh, which makes sense actually for the interferences that uh, were detected inside of our system. We've been able to see it. So we're already getting really close to peer review with at least one other individual. And I've got another couple in Arizona who are looking at buying the SE5 and getting trained by me in order to use it. And so I'm slowly building up a research society of uh, people besides myself just doing research. And um, as we transition from just an academy to a society, I think that people will begin to see some really awesome information because if I publish things right now, it's very anecdotal. You know, that's the way that it is if it only comes from one person. But once we get data coming in from multiple individuals uh, with, with case studies that you know, echo the very same concepts or the very same approach, now we have a little bit of peer review and we have people who will be able to write articles and, and also approve those articles and say, you know what, based on my experience, this is true or this isn't true. And that's equally as valuable information. So right now, um, I mostly discuss my case studies with uh, a lot of my students and clients and you know things like that. And I'm just compiling lots of that data right now. And uh, within the next year or two, hopefully we'll be able to hire another data analyst to go through the data and publish the data and uh, give it back to me in such a way that I can write a narrative uh, about it so that we can start publishing it. But one of, the, one of the most important things that we're working on right now is taking every single product that's in our apothecary and we've come up with this huge list of things that uh, that plant or that spagyric might be good for and its, its quality. So for instance, does it correspond to, in Chinese medicine, does it correspond to metal or to wood or to earth or to fire or to water? Does it correspond to, um, you know, in the Aristotelian, does it correspond to fire, water, air, or earth? Does it correspond to, you know, all of these things? And then also on top of all of that data, um, is it good for this condition? Can it be used successfully for this condition, for this condition, for this condition? And that will be the first intrinsic data field uh, data or really any inquiry into what each type of spagyric pharmacopoeia from a particular plant is good for. And also the first time that we'll be actually searching objectively for what's in its intrinsic data field as being that particular remedies, uh, planetary ruler or constellational affinity and we will be able to compare that data with uh, the, the planetary and constellational affinity of the raw earth uh, in the future as well. So that we'll be able to see like, okay, well, when we took this herb, it started off with a jovial you know, or Jupiter influence. And by the time we were done with it, it has taken on a martial influence and it's good for the immune system and, you know, like the spleen and so on and so forth like that. Um, so, yeah, I think that we'll be able to draw some really interesting conclusions that nobody's ever even taken a stab at and uh, at least publish it and put it out there and see, you know, I'm always encouraging people. It's like, you can do this very same thing in whatever field that you're interested in, or even in the same field, just go ahead and get started, get your hands dirty and then, you know, reach out to me and be like, hey, here's what I've been doing, you know, uh, do you have time to research this or can I see some of your results so that I can peer review them and you know, right now we're at a very early age and phase of the game to be able to do things like that because there's so much that needs to be explored 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's like things are just ripe and they're really just beginning. And so uh, it's, it's been really amazing working on this path and being able to find out uh, all of the things that I already have, like how I need to make uh, Proteamia when the moon is at 31 degrees Leo precisely. If I wait any longer than that, then it doesn't have the same effect because it's partially affecting the astral body, not just working with hypothalamus and monoamine uh, neurotransmitters. And so, you know, it's, I'm constantly getting my mind blown by the data that we do produce. And hopefully this will lend to the corpus of, of what's to come next. I don't expect it to be the end all be all, but I do want it to be uh, a stepping stone or at least a springboard for further uh, inquiry to be able to happen in this field by other people who maybe come after me or possibly, hopefully, also my contemporaries so that we have the chance to work together. Yes, it's all very exciting. I'm I'm just so thrilled to see you, you know, you're, you're kind of trailblazing this modern movement. Of course, with the, the people we talked about earlier, Jean Zubois, and, yeah. uh, you, you know, this is, it's a, it's an exciting new renaissance and we should all be thankful that people out there are like you are trailblazing and hopefully like you said more people will join in this is what we need uh to get this rolling so that we all find a deeper sense of what's going on here in our lives and it starts with this physical kind of work whether you're in the lab or not it this is all we need to do the work on self ultimately and by doing this kind of work uh, we we add to the collective. It's a big deal. It's a very big deal. There's nothing that could possibly be a bigger deal, actually. I think that that's, that's the key to all of the work that I'm doing because I'm finding particular applications and, you know, that's the way I get my funding. But hopefully what people will draw away from the experience of Phoenix Aurelius when they think of that name or when they, they look at my work in the future uh, long after I'm gone, it will be, man, that guy tried to weave alchemy into our social fabric in such a way that it was just like, you know, you, you can't take it back out again. And, yes. you know, people will know how to process their trauma by using the alchemical process. They'll know how to garden because of the alchemical process. They'll know how to develop societies and, and new ideas of governmental uh uh, just ways of being new new systems that haven't even been thought of because of the alchemical process and taking things from where they're at now and being able to get, you know, take all of the, the vital elements of it and all of the things that work and keep everything else behind that doesn't and, you know, find a way to make all that stuff that doesn't work actually feed the system of what does work so that we can create new things. And, and uh, you know, if people can really begin to think like that, it doesn't matter what the application is. We're living the yeah. alchemical lifestyle at that point. Yes. Yeah. I mean, everything you just said is alchemical. Yep. <laughs> like on every, every level. Part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am thrilled. Thank you so much. I don't know. Jer, what do you have? <clears throat> Nothing. We can wrap it up. It's been two hours. This is, It's just been a great honor to have yeah. you here. Completely. And, and just such a major deep dive. I know that a lot of people this is brand new for them and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, if you're feeling cross-eyed that's probably that's <laughs> yeah. a good thing <laughs> but it's a good thing that they're encountering you because you know what you're talking about and you're out there in the field doing it and it helps people that are coming up against brick walls either they're having ill health or they're struggling with wh- why what and how and all this other stuff and 
and so your overall messaging is great, but then you actually have pathways uh, that you present. So it's uh, your intelligence in this is should be a breath of fresh air and help people expand and open their minds and stretch into new ideas and new modes of operation and health and healing and being. So thank you so much, Phoenix. Yeah, it's fun. Oh, thank you guys. This has been an absolutely fun conversation and I've really, Nish, uh, appreciated uh, how deep your understanding was about alchemy and how you could kind of wrap on for a little bit that it really, for me, is uh, doing an interview that, that made all the difference in the world because I'm not just, you know, covering the same old ground that I do in all the interviews. We got to talk about some really fun things here tonight and, uh, you know, even if the listeners don't understand it all, hopefully it really just like, broke it yeah. open. It's yes. like, wow, there's a, there's a whole world for me to explore if I want to. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I, I've not been in the lab, so I've been here. Everyone needs to know this, and anyone that knows me knows I've yearned to do that. That's my next step, actually, is to get into the lab. So I'm working towards that. That's cool. Well, you know, we've always got places, and uh, hopefully 2021 things, you know, I think after the elections, all of this COVID nonsense will completely yeah. clear up, and uh, you know, even if it doesn't, I think the travel restrictions and other things like inevitably you're going to have to get back to business. It's just the way that things work. So, you know, keep an eye out for 2021 and uh, or even throughout the rest of the year. I've got a few more workshops yet in October and November. So uh, yes. love to have you here. Great. And That's I've got a links. message. Sorry, I'm go sorry. And that is a big message. I keep saying just for people out in the world. There's a lot going on. And I think it's really important to keep making plans and to keep dreaming and, and moving forward in your life and not stopping here. Yes, a lot is changing and that's the nature of everything. And so let's embrace that, but don't forget to continue on with plans and moving forward. This is yeah. how you get through this. Uh, I mean, we could throw the definite alchemical analogy around this, seal the vessel and let's go, you know, yeah. Just <laughs> yeah, move <exactly>. forward. <laughs> yep. Jerry, you were saying? Yeah, I was going to say that basically, you know, he's, uh, he said that he thought after the election it would clear up. And I think a lot of it will clear up, would clear up quickly if some of these businesses who are getting smashed, the bigger ones, think of the airlines, right? Oh, yeah. They're not pushing back on it at all. So when these huge corporations start pushing back on it going, hey, you're killing us here. That's when it, that's when I think it'll start to ease up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's. You can have whatever kind of approach that you want for why COVID is doing this thing and what a virus is, whatever else. But the actual fact of the matter is that it's financially driven somewhere along the line. Yep. And when people put enough financial pressure on the system, the, the system won't cave because it yep. knows where the money is and where that's just how things work. So. Absolutely. So I put links to your site in the show notes and description of this video. Did you have any other things you wanted to plug before we say ta-ta? Yeah, man, uh, anybody who's interested, and thank you so much for that opportunity, Jerry, sure. actually. Uh, for anybody who is interested in learning alchemy, I actually have a teachable site with a completely free uh, introduction to Spagyria. I didn't get to talk about Spagyria a whole lot, uh, at least in depth, or even define that on this, but this is basically applying alchemy for making remedies and medicines, and there's an entire pharmacopoeia of Spagyric medicines and Spagyric philosophy 
that most people aren't even aware of today, but it's equally as potent as traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurveda. It's just a different approach that, that uh, originated with Paracelsus. So I've got a completely free course that you can take uh, on that on my Teachable page, which is the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy. Uh, if you just research that on Teachable, or you can get to that through the education page, uh, the online study link on my website. And then uh, if you're really interested in going a little bit further, I give uh, in Spagiria 1010, uh, the, other, the other course is currently published on that site. Um, I give uh, lesson 00, which is a full outline of the entire process completely for free. And so you get not only to taste what my education style looks like on those uh, higher ticket items for education, but you also get to actually download a ton of, of PDF resources and other things like that that walk you through in very plain English how to be able to make spagyric tinctures yourself and kind of outline some cool. of the, the processes and materials that you might need. So that's cool. Cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. It was wonderful meeting you and talking to you and hopefully come back sometime, maybe for a Nox Mente. Another, it's our other show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, well, I like that. Uh, Nox Mente would be like a mental night or like a night uh, mind night mind. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, the show is all about dreams. We just ask you about your dreams. Oh, unconsciousness, consciousness, yes, consciousness exploration. exploration. Yeah. Oh, that's super rad. Yeah, let's let's definitely do one. You guys just go <laughs> ahead and get in contact with support, and we'll be in touch. It's all been right. a pleasure chatting with you both. Yes, thank, thank you so, so much. much for this opportunity. Yep, and thank you everyone for listening. It's been a great uh, evening. Please like this video if you like it. And subscribe to our YouTube channel if you're listening uh, out there on podcast land. And uh, I guess that's about it. Next week, next week, Jer. Next week we have. I was getting to it. Next week we have a Noxmente with uh, Tom Ross, who's Keats Ross's dad. Oh yes, transhumanist. He's a transhumanist advocate. Yes. So can't wait to talk to him. That's a Noxmente show, so it'll all be about dreams, not so much. Oh, yeah. What? All right. <laughs> I heard that. That wasn't me, Jerry. I think it's your cat. No, it wasn't my cat. My cat's right here. <laughs> we, did we have a little gremlin of some I sort? I think we had an EVP. Did you hear that, show. Phoenix? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, I think it's the homunculus in the corner. Right? Oh God, that was so weird. <laughs> it was very strange. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, this Friday, uh, Josh and I have rescheduled finally for our ghost hunting. So we're supposed to Josh go Friday. Kitchen? Yeah. Excellent. We're going to the uh, Altoona Civil War battleground at, on Friday oh, yeah. night, like at midnight. Yeah. Oh, that'll be fun. So I'll be, have my digital recorder. We'll get some EVPs. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. that's all I got. Thanks so much, everybody. We love you. Good night. I'll be in though.